0: how they're going to make, let's say the most difficult thing to make croissants and not have a recipe, not have a grocery list, not have the equipment that you need to make something, right? It's the same concept. How are you going to be a chief or a chair or the dean or the provost or whatever you want to be without having some sort of a roadmap,
1: Welcome to Doc Working, The Whole Physician Podcast. My name is Gabriella Dennery, MD, co-lead life coach and podcast co-host at Doc Working. For today's episode, I invited my sister, Dr. Phyllis Dennery, Chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Brown University, for a wide-ranging conversation on rethinking careers in academic medicine, the progress made, and the challenges ahead. Welcome back to the Doc Working, The Whole Physician Podcast. I'm just so excited because we're going to talk about a journey in medicine, in particular a journey in academic medicine, with one who really breathes very rarefied air. And I'm going to introduce you to my big sister, Dr. Phyllis Armel Dennery, let me say it in English, Phyllis A. Dennery. And Phyllis, I'm going to embarrass you first and then welcome you to the podcast by reading your title, because I'm just... Very darn proud of you, and I want everybody to know this. The Sylvia K. Hassenfeld Professor of Pediatrics, Chair, Department of Pediatrics, Professor of Cell Biology, Molecular Biology, and Biochemistry at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University, a Pediatrician-in-Chief, Rhode Island Hospital, Medical Director, Hasbro Children's Hospital. And you are, of course, a published scholar and author and traveled the world sharing your research with the world, as well as aspiring medical students and researchers. And and I could go on and on and on talking about your accolades, which is impressive enough. But I also want to find out about your journey in medicine as a leader, as a mom, as a family member, and how all this kind of worked together over the years. So first of all, welcome to the Doc Working Podcast, Phyllis.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here and try my best to answer your questions. And first (laughs) of all, your introduction was way too elaborate because I'm a person here. So thank you. Yep. Thank
1: you. That's part of the reason for the interview, because it's like there's the coat and everything that it represents and everything that you've accomplished. And there's you as a human being having made those accomplishments. So tell me a little bit more about how you see your journey in medicine as a leader. What was the easiest thing for you and what was
0: the biggest challenge for you? So, I appreciate that question. I think that when I first thought about medicine, as you well know, our family is riddled with physicians uh, throughout the whole family. And that was almost a premeditated or predestined choice to go into medicine for many of us in the family. However, at one point, I sort of thought, oh, do I really want to do this? I thought about genetics. I wanted to be a geneticist and a scientist. But Somewhere along the line, I realized when I was an undergraduate that I really did want to go to med school. And that was something that was a passion that I wanted to have. So I put my energy into it. And I said, Okay, I'm going to get there and really make it work. So I ended up going to Howard University and enjoying medical school more than I thought. It felt very familiar. It's a lot of stuff I already knew in my mind or that made sense to me The learnings that had to go on. So Then deciding what to do next. When I was a third year medical student, I walked into the neonatal intensive care unit because we had a pediatric rotation. And so now we would never do this, have a baby out in the open. Somebody could reach in because that's not good, safe practice and, you know, infection control. But there was a tiny little baby on a warmer bed and the attending physician reached over and placed her little finger in the space and the little baby grabbed her little finger, just like that. And I said, wow. I said, I wanna be a neonatologist because these little creatures that are so fragile who go on to become human beings that participate in life, this is what I want to do. So I pushed for that. That was something that I really thought, wow, that's really what's my calling. So I realized I had to do a whole lot of things before I got there, Trained in pediatrics and then trained in neonatology. And I did all those things. And then finally, I ended up with my first position in neonatology at Stanford University. When I got there, I realized how important research was for me. I wanted to understand why these babies had problems with their lungs. What was causing the problems? Was it the oxygen we were giving in order to support them? And I studied that. I'm still studying that for the last 30 plus years. So a strange thing happens in medicine. You are asked to serve as a you know, physician, doing clinical work, doing research, doing whatever you're doing in academia. But all of a sudden people say, well, look, this person is doing so well as a researcher, as a whatever. And they say, oh, she'll be a great leader. Well, I don't know how those two connect, but that's how people see it, that there's a connection between your skills in the lab or in wherever you're doing the research you're doing and you becoming a leader. So I was approached for many leadership opportunities, you know, to become a division director in neonatology. And that's what took me to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I spent the next 12 years after spending 14 years at Stanford, 12 years of my career as the division director in that unit. And of course, then, you know, you spend time there, you develop programs, and that became more fun for me to think of strategically, sorry about the dogs, strategically engaging people and building programs and making things happen and developing other people. How do you help other junior people learn about what their passion is and how they're going to make that passion happen? So I saw it as a way to pay it forward. And then after 12 years doing that, they said, oh, now you got to do more. So so I was recruited to be a chair here at Brown University, the chair of pediatrics there. So it's an opportunity to really engage others and to take people and help them see their way through this difficult and complicated path of getting a career, getting a career that's satisfying and fulfilling. So that's kind of been the journey that I've taken, and why I'm where I am. And along the way, building networks, attending meetings where you meet other colleagues who think, oh, she's okay. And then you do more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. Anyway.
1: As far as leadership is concerned, and this is a topic that we talk about at Doc Working, to me, it sounds like, okay, well, here, let's grab you for this position or recruit you for this position. Was there a lot of kind of learning as you went? I mean, did you feel like you knew what you were doing right off the bat
0: or? Oh, of course not. So unfortunately, that's what I say is wrong with that system is that they don't prepare you as much as they should for the opportunity that they're saying you're so good at. They don't know that. But there's a lot of on the job learning. But there are many opportunities now that are much more clear about ways in which people can train to become what they are excited about. So now my uh, journey continues and it's much more strategic about how do I get to know, what am I getting myself into in these next steps and these next opportunities? And so I took a lot of leadership development courses through various national organizations and also locally to better understand what are some of the pitfalls in becoming a leader you want to be a leader that's inclusive you want to be a leader that has a way of thinking that helps people and isn't reactive isn't strident isn't that many many things so there's lessons to learn because we all have our personalities but sometimes we have to also understand how our personality traits might affect others and make their lives either good or bad
1: so Phyllis, what do you think has been the easy parts for you in this journey as you kind of climbed the medical ladder? But it sounds almost like not quite coincidence, but that's kind of where you were meant to be. And that's where you went. And what were the biggest challenges, do you think?
0: So the easiest things, okay, let's start with easy, maybe. So I don't know, I, I remember going to a, sort of a spiritual person. And she said, Oh, in the past life, you were a general and I think I believe that (laughs) that I I believe that lady knew something about me (laughs) but she said that that was (laughs) in some Roman empire anyway someone who takes charge right so I said okay let's go let's do this let's do that so that part was easy how do you organize things I feel like my personality is one of being a catalyst and sort of a initiator someone who gets things started who thinks creatively about stuff so that part wasn't so hard so with the general piece comes the other side of the dark side of being a general is that you're oftentimes hard on people and maybe strident and maybe convinced of your way and that's been a very important lesson to learn how do you tell someone how you know, you see things and how to help them grow without destroying them by saying mean things or being hard and assuming that your thoughts around excellence are some things that everyone is prepared for or wants or whatever. So it took a minute to learn that you can't get people excited about anything if you're too hard and you don't give them praise. And that's not something we grew up with in our household. Oh, no, that wasn't.
1: (laughs) We knew the other way, the other general.
0: (laughs) So I had to learn, how do you add the flowers? Because people cannot respond if they feel berated. It's the same thing for many things, right? If someone is never thought to be good enough, they won't be good enough. So I've learned to fill in some of the flowers and be much more kind and understanding that not everyone also will have the same thoughts about what they want in life as you had when it was your turn. So it's especially relevant for millennials and others where I'm an old boomer. And when I think about life, it's like, yeah, 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 drive, drive, drive. Uh But that's not necessarily what others want.
1: This is very interesting, because as someone who now deals with a millennial generation of physicians, and you're kind of grooming millennial physicians, what do you see that they need the kind of support that they're looking for, as opposed to what it would be for a physician of your generation or my generation, when we were just like, just go no matter what the environment was? What are they looking for?
0: They're looking for time. And they want to be remunerated for stuff you're asking them to do. So in my generation, someone said, I want you to serve on this committee and do this extra ton of work and blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, yes, sir. And keep on going. And yes, that's going to be good for me. I could see the benefit of it as a career benefit, you know, saying, oh, this is going to help my career, advance my career. So I don't really, I'm not looking for money for it. This generation, I've been sort of interested in finding out that they want to know, okay, if I do this much more stuff, what's going to come off my plate? Or what's going to be added to my remuneration to compensate me for this work that I'm taking on? It's not just about money, but time and, you know, acknowledgement and reasonable expectations. And you may think it's great for their careers and they think, no, I don't right. want that.
1: Does it have an impact on someone's career? I'm kind of at the tail end of the boomer bordering on Generation X, but- does it still have an impact on a person's career to say no to being on committees or to say, well, you know, well, what are you going to help me with for my additional time? Because I want my time to go elsewhere, my energy to go elsewhere. So
0: it's still hard, right? Because we're still in the same model, which is that you have to have something, you have to have Means that are counted and sort of a written documentation of your engagement in other things for people to consider you. It's only now that more other considerations are being included in what people see as a track record or a means of being promoted or you know move into the next ladder. So at Brown University, for example we're starting to have very intricate conversations about people who spend a lot of their time doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Is that not counted in their academic success or their academic track? And now it's being counted. It's going to be much more important for those people to be recognized for that and to be promoted even based on their work there. Mm -hmm. But that's new. You know, and, you know, can you say, I've been involved in my child's school? I've been vaccinating in the community. And does that count towards you being viewed as a leader? I would say that we're still in that world where it's fairly male dominated, where there's not a lot of opportunity for that stuff to be as recognized
1: but you see a shift, at least where you are, do you see a shift in other parts of the country or that you know of at this point?
0: A minor shift. I don't think it's all there yet. (laughs) But there is consideration. We have part-time faculty. We have people who are promoted who are part-time faculty. So it's not necessary for you to be only doing the things I did, which is work in the lab, write papers from the lab and go to conferences and this and that.
1: And see patients and do all the admin work and, you
0: know, et cetera. Yeah. But it's not changing that fast. I wouldn't say, oh, yes, it's going to be all based on other more intangible things.
1: But just listening to you, I do have a glimmer of hope that it does have a little bit of shift and impact because there was an interesting article in the New York Times recently talking about how flexible medical career can actually be in terms of work hours. And that is particularly true of women in medicine, women with children in medicine, and even younger men now, physicians under the age of 40, even men are saying, well, what is the quality of my life at this point? And how the choice of a specialty may have to do a lot with that. What is the quality of my life at this point? And yet still be able to have a medical career.
0: It's much different. So when I was in training, you know, you'd walk through the snow in your bare feet. No, I you know, <laughs> But the- <laughs> you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but that's exactly come rain, come shine, the- <laughs> yeah. whatever. You'd go in. You would have an IV pole. Even if you were sick, you would keep going. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that <laughs> has changed dramatically. Now the training, even in surgical training, has changed some where you do still have responsibility, of course, but there's a lot more attention to work hour rules where people are not given an endless amount of work hours, and there's no end to it, right? And there's no glory associated with that. In fact, people get penalized for making residents do too much work. So it's a very different model. And it's leading to people saying, you know, it's okay, I can learn, but I don't have to be destroyed, uh, suicidal, uh, depressed, burned out, because my work is the only thing that matters. There was a generation of neonatologists before me, way before me, who never had children or even never married because they dedicated their lives to their work as neonatologists and the call and all that stuff. Now, that's not the reality anymore. Mm -hmm.
1: But you also came up in a generation where you kind of were in that space where it was just that kind of very male dominated work 24-7 model and you bust your butt if you want to get anywhere. And you clearly had, and I'm going to use the A word for women, it's a little touchy sometimes, but it's like you clearly had ambition, and you were not shy about it. And it wasn't just that somebody pulled you out and say, oh, you'd be a good division chief, you worked for it. And you also had your eye on it. And everything that came after that. And at the same time, you raised two children.
0: Yes. And I'm married for 34 years. So some things happen and I have these two little yippy dogs over there. And, uh, you know, we do things. We have a life. I love to garden. I love to take care of my orchids in the kitchen. I wish I could show you. And all these other things that I love to do. I'm now an expert bread maker. I make croissants. I have life. I love that I, because if I wasn't doing those things, it would be very bizarre and not pleasant. And life would be very depressing otherwise if you couldn't have aspirations and an outlet to your creativity. So no, I came up in that world. I wish people didn't see ambition as something awful. Ambition, there's two differences. There's blind ambition, maybe where people do anything to get ahead, no matter who's in their path. And I don't even think that's really called ambition. That's just destructive. But if you have a strategy in mind, you know, we're not going and floating around like amoebas. You you're trying to get from point A to point B in your goals and saying, at this point in my life, I'd like to move to this, to do that, to be the next X or Y or whatever you want to do. And what is the path to that? Right. And you would think that, you know, here I am, an old lady, whatever, I've done my few things that I would say, okay, now I don't have to plan for anything, but I am actually even more strategic now in planning of my next steps in career. Because as I always say, I think I have one more gig in me. You know, I got the last gig, the formal gig, and then I have a plan after that as to how to stay engaged without coming in every, you know, none of that stuff. But you have to be planful. And I learn every time I take these courses that give you an opportunity to think about What else can you do and how do you do it?
1: I mean, you mentioned being strategic. And I know for me, in my personal experience, I have to say there were moments where I kind of lost where I was going or why. Like through med school, I still had a clear idea. I loved medical school. It was phenomenal. And then residency kind of just took the wind out of me, I admit. And I decided not to pursue subspecialty training. Part of that is for that reason. I was just exhausted. But overall, it was just losing track of what the big picture was. What was that big picture for me? I didn't know anymore and I didn't cultivate that. So, you know, what you said about being strategic, to me, it's more like, what are you really going for and to hold on to what the big picture is for you 10 years from now, you know, 15 years from now. It's not just about what happens today.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly true. So tell me if anyone is able to think of how they're going to make, let's say the most difficult thing to make, croissants, and not have a recipe, not have a grocery list, not have the equipment that you need to make something, right? It's the same concept. How are you going to be a chief or a chair or the dean or the provost or whatever you want to be without having some sort of a roadmap, some sort of guidance, tutorials, mentors, Mm -hmm. I still have very, very important mentors who are working with me on a monthly basis. You know, here I am, I'm the chair, blah, blah, blah. I've been at this for a thousand years. But I still have people that I refer to every month to say, hey, what do you think? Coaches, mentors, people who say you can do this because sometimes you don't feel you can do this Mm -hmm. or you're pretty tired and you're pretty exhausted. You say, I just don't see how I'm going to do this. And someone is your sponsor and says, hey, I've got this young person, this middle-aged person, this whoever person that I can recommend for this committee, for that stuff, for this. You know, I recently took a course on women on boards because, you know, that's something that guys do and they get paid for it. They serve on medical boards, on pharmaceutical boards, on health industry type boards, And it's not an all consuming thing, but that's how these people get ahead and do things and then have a path when they retire where they might have a few gigs that they could do without being at the same job every day doing hard labor. Not to say it's easy, but I learned so much more than the board. I learned about how do you present yourself? What's your image on social media? What are you passionate about? Are you able to give of yourself for volunteer organizations, for things that are dear to your heart? You know, so it's work, but with the right mentors, you can find that path that's right for you. And it may be different than your path, my path, this one's path, but the bottom line is you have to be strategic about it. And you have to think it through. It doesn't drop in your lap. No way. Absolutely no way.
1: And that's the thing. I think the whole idea of mentorship and guidance is key because, I mean, medical education in and of itself can be very isolated and isolating. And so medical education, training, and how to break out of that habit, I've got to figure out everything myself, do everything myself, which is kind of... To me, in my experience, I don't know about you, but that is kind of what the mentality of the training itself was. But to break out of that, to be able to say, no, I need support. I have questions. I don't know. Let me ask. Let me go find somebody who can answer my questions or who can lead me to somebody else who can answer my questions. And you also mentioned taking classes, taking courses, you know, educating yourself in terms of how the systems work, because you learn how to treat patients, but not a whole lot else in terms of the medical trajectory itself. The rest of it really is saying, okay, I need to know more about this and then
0: going for it. Also, I have to add advocating for yourself. So Mm. if you think that you will get somewhere by not reaching out to people, I have young students, I have middle people, I have professors reaching out and saying, can you give me a hand on this? Can you help me out? Can you nominate me for this? sometimes you have to reach out and you have to help the person who's going to do it for you by writing out how wonderful you are the things you've done so that they can advocate for you people are busy people don't have a whole lot of time to think about what you know right off the top of your head about you help people help you
1: and very true i mean if you're nominated for a grammy or something doesn't fall out of the blue. Somebody doesn't knock on the door. You get that campaign going and you advocate for yourself. You nominate yourself or somebody else nominates you and you just go for it. So it's the same process. In order for people to know where you are, you got to, hey, hi, I'm here and this is what I need. This is what I need. And can you help me?
0: Gone are the days of sitting at the lunch counter and getting discovered. That doesn't exist. (laughs) You have to discover you, you know? Right. That's it. No, that's
1: excellent. I love that one. You got to go out there and discover you and make sure everybody else (laughs) discovers you too. And it's not always an easy road. So Phyllis, I asked you before we started recording,
0: were you the only Black chair at your medical school? And my answer, it can be very simple, yes, but much more in depth would be to say, I really hate the concept of, oh, the first, the only, that stuff, because the whole point is where it becomes irrelevant, where it's just as likely that you or your colleague of color or the woman next to you could be that person versus it just being relegated to men. So right now, we're so happy, oh, there's the first this and the first that. But the reality is, it needs to become that it's as normal, and as accepted and as common as it needs to be for the population
1: I mean, what does that mean in terms of your work right now, though? What is your impact, do you think, on young doctors of color who are looking at you and saying, whoa, you know?
0: Well, it's, you know, just my face makes a difference in young people who are looking at a website and say, oh, and they reach out and they say, oh, I'd like to talk to you, work with you, do something with you. It's a bit easier for me to recruit someone who is of color. And so the higher you are in the hierarchy, the more you have impact on who will be there with you. And so it's so much easier for me to recruit someone who is like me, a person of color. I can have much more credibility as a recruiter of these people into my department and saying, you know, it's safe to come here. It's a good place to be. It's a place where you could grow than someone who doesn't represent what I represent and sometimes they don't come but one of which a really brilliant guy he's now my mentee he says i'd like you to mentor me we meet monthly or every other month to talk about his career path and i send opportunities his way so there are ways in which we can by just being who we are we can help grow that group so that we are not the only one and that's my passion my determination in what I do is that I feel like, okay, a lot of people talk about, oh, let's diversify the medical school class. Let's mm-hmm. diversify this one that one. doesn't matter as much in my opinion, and I, I could get people all upset, as, Probably as, well. <laughs> as if you have a leader who represents that diversity so that now you can keep bringing more residents and students and fellows of color Into the mix. So it's not that it doesn't matter to do it from the ground up. A lot of people use that strategy. The question is that pipeline is awfully long and is, quotes, leaky in that you send people elsewhere too. But if you bring people into leadership, you can make a difference in that culture because someone gets on their bully pulpit and says, no, we're not going to accept these microaggressions, this very white supremacist educational model where, you know, you don't think about these things, how they affect us and make us feel like we don't necessarily belong. You know, the other day, some white man was talking about how just not having bandages of color can influence a child in thinking outside of the norm. So why aren't we having bandages that are brown and beige and not just white or light. And similarly, when we show a picture of a disease on a white skin, do we now prevent people from seeing and understanding how that disease would look on a brown skin? There's so many things that only people who are thinking about that can help change the medical curriculum, can help broaden people's perspective of disease And of what's the normal, you know, I can play a role as a leader and not feel that I'm going to get reprimanded for saying things that are saying, you know, we don't have enough women in leadership at our university. We have uh, two women chairs in the medical school. Mm -hmm. And one is me as a woman of color, but there's just two. And if you add the biomed, there's maybe one or two more. So it's very limited. When you think about it so we have to make a difference there because i
1: mean to me in in any situation it goes beyond just an inclusion statement it's like what are you actually doing about it because it's not about what happens today but it's the impact for years to come and so i think that that's what your message is right now
0: correct me if i'm wrong no the message is that but also the message is that we are good at saying oh let's get more people but Do we make it such that they want to be there? And so now with more emphasis on training and educating people about what constitutes unconscious bias, microaggressions. I just took another course on how to be a mentor for students of color. Well, you would say, oh, you should know that stuff. Well, I don't know all that stuff, but it's very important to understand that there are some situations that may not be relevant to you that apply to others where they feel the pain of not being understood and having to sort of suffer in silence. So we want to make it inclusive and we want to make it equitable as well.
1: Right. And it's two different things because it's, okay, you have a numbers game, like getting more people in and then, okay, well, how do we make sure they're supported? Because to bring people in and to just say, okay, we have the numbers, bye, see ya,
0: doesn't help. That is what is driving a lot of things right now. However, the next phase where we're really concentrating on making it an environment where people want to stay, the retention and all that, that the inclusion and retention piece is the next phase in this process, which I think is beginning.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. So Phyllis thank you so much. I have one more question for you because you've talked about so much about leadership, about race in medicine, about women in medicine, about that career track and flexible hours and what does that mean and kind of the beginnings of a medical education that is starting to recognize that working 24/7 is not necessarily make for a good doctor or a good preceptor or a good teacher, a good academician that there are other factors that can come into play you covered so much this is such a rich conversation but there's one more question that i would like to ask as i was talking to a friend of mine a med school classmate of mine we were talking about our legacies what do we want to leave behind what kind of impact we want to have as author james clear says on our corner of the world what do you think your impact is or what you would like it to be on your corner of the world
0: So for me, the impact would be to make medicine a much more hospitable place for women, for people of color as a whole, and to really embrace the concept that we are there to serve our communities, however we do that. To me, the impact would be to really vision a a world where the doctors represent the patients in the okay. genders, in, in the colors, and all of that, and really see that that movement is solidified. So, of course, that's not something I was going to do by myself, but that's something I can do along with others and really working on more connection with the community because that's really, really important. The other side of me being that duality. Now I'm also a molecular biologist and all that other stuff. Uh, Yeah, I'd like to make a difference in how babies' lungs are treated and not damaged as we figure out solutions in the laboratory. I'd love to see some of that become reality for the baby, but that's becoming more and more challenging as I have less time to really sit there and do that stuff. But it's a dream, a pipe dream.
1: Yeah, well, maybe not a pipe dream. <laughs> it's just, I mean, just the ability to continue to dream and to vision and to see, okay, not just what's next for me in terms of my career track, but what kind of imprint I want to leave on the world as I move forward and, you know, as the next generation comes up. Because somebody will always pick up where you left off. And so to be able to leave something to leave off for somebody else to pick up, that I think is important work as well. So no, not at all a pipe dream. And so, Phyllis, thank you so much. This was such an enriching conversation. Not only did I learn, I learned so much about you because we just <laughs> yeah, gossip yeah. about family and stuff. We yeah. never really talk about this stuff. So thank you. I'm just like, wow.
0: <laughs> it's fun to talk to you about these things and in a different environment. And I apologize profusely for the connection, the dogs, but that's part of life, isn't it? So yeah. Thanks. Definitely.
1: Thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy, busy person. Enjoy the rest of your day and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. We want to remind you that if you do want coaching support right now, all you have to do is go to docworking.com and you can check out our coaching opportunities for you to get a certified coach who is experienced in working with positions. Also, if you're not on our newsletter yet, you got to get over to docworking.com today and sign up That's how you find out about all kinds of offers and resources that we have available to you. So until next time, thanks so much for being with us here on Doc Working, The Whole Physician Podcast.
0: Hello, and thank you for listening. This is Amanda Tarrin. I'm the producer of the Doc Working Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please like and subscribe. We would also love it if you checked out our website, which is DocWorking.com. And you can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. On Instagram, we are DocWorking1, and that is with the number 1. When you check us out on social, please let us know what you would like to hear on the podcast. Your feedback really means a lot to us. And if you're a physician with a story you'd like to tell, please reach out to me at amanda at docworking.com to apply to be on the podcast. Thank you again, and we look forward to talking with you on the next episode of Doc Working, The Whole Physician Podcast.